Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Mossy reminded me that it's fireworks night tonight, so hopefully my voice will prevail over the loud noise and bangs. Let me just pray um, as we look at God's word together. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks to your people and speaks to all people through your word. And Lord, I, I pray and we pray tonight that as we uh, leave this building, we will be more wowed uh, by the Lord Jesus. In your uh, precious son's name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, let me begin with a question. And the question is this. What are the right conditions needed for a new world? And if you're thinking, this world is good enough, isn't it? Uh, there's no need for a new one. Well, I want to start by saying, you're, you're, you're right. It is good. The world is good. It is full of creativity and life. And mankind has definitely grown. I've got three ways that they've grown. They've grown in number. I mean, the population is reaching new heights on a, like, an hourly basis. In technology, it is ridiculous what you can do now with tiny little uh, computer chips with a bit of soldering on there. And they've also grown in skill. The very reason we need more and more competitions is because records keep getting beaten. It is a good world, the world that we live in now. But it's not just good, though, is it? It's also a terrible world, full of terrible decisions. Think of rulers. Think of even yourselves and your family that have hurt you and you hurt your family. I think of myself and the way that that's happened in my life. And it's also full of pain and disaster and death. My granddad is over 80 and he's lost his wife. He's lost a daughter and now he's slowly losing his memory. The world is crying out for a change, isn't it? And so, what are the right conditions needed for a new one? What are the right conditions needed for a new world? And that is what our passage is going to teach us tonight. Um, and because of Jesus, can I just start by saying, what we find is, is all fulfilled in him. It becomes a reality in him. What this passage teaches us about a new world and what's needed for it to happen and for it to last is all fulfilled because of Christ. And so open your Bibles uh, if you haven't, if you shut them and just look down with me at verse uh, 20 because my first point is from there. The first thing uh, our world, a new world needs is a restored relationship. Look at verse 20 with me. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking all the clean animals and some birds and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Now we might not think much of that, apart from the fact that it's a little bit weird. He built a table to spill a load of blood from animals that he slaughtered. Ones that don't have a blemish on them. Well, whatever we think about that, it's important what the Israelites reading this thinks about that. Because they know all about the sacrificial system that's set up in Leviticus. And they would know that what Noah is doing is an obedient thing. This is a very good 
and a very right thing that Noah's doing. And the result of that, in verse 21 if you look, is that God is pleased when the the smoke of the burnt sacrifice or obedience of Noah is smelt by the Lord. He loves it. He's pleased with it. He's pleased with Noah. And this is massive, right? Because God has not been very pleased recently in Genesis. In chapter 6, he wasn't pleased. He was grieved. He was grieved and even says that he regretted even making mankind. But here, he looks at Noah and enjoys his obedience. God is so pleased with it that look what he says in his heart. Verse 21 The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. This is like a trailer to the covenant. that we find out and read about later. He doesn't actually say this to Noah until uh, until then. But the point here is that God is pleased in his heart with man again. God and man restored in a loving relationship. That is the first condition needed for a new world. The second is this, a renewed world or a, a, a renewed creation. And I wonder whether, as those verses were read, uh, one, one, in chapter 9, 1 to 7, I wonder whether any of them sounded a little bit familiar to you. Uh, let me read just the first three verses. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. You're the boss of the beasts and the birds and the bugs and the fish. I couldn't think of a bee for the fish. The fear and dread of you, mankind, will be on those animals and those creatures and those birds. In other words, you will subdue them and you will rule over them. This is Genesis 1. When God made his good creation, part of it being good involved man to increase, being, be fruitful, filling the earth and ruling over the things on the earth. And there was nothing wrong with that. So of course, as Noah steps off the ark into this sort of new beginning, he gets the same job description. And whatever you think about the details of verses 4 to 6, I want to highlight one thing that is crystal clear. And that is that the Lord owns all of life. You see that in the way that he he commands what happens with life, especially in the way that he demands an account three times in verse 5 for when life is taken away, man or beast. 
And if in verse 6 someone decides to take life into their own hands and kill another human being, not being able to give an account for it to God, they shall be killed. That's the standard that's set here. And killing, isn't that the biggest way that you take life into your own hands? And God says to that, no, I own life. It's mine. Why? Verse 6. Familiar words again. For in the image of God has God made mankind. It's been this way from the very beginning. And so knowing that I own life, do what I made you to do in verse 7. A a renewed world is needed. Order needs to be restored the way it was made in the beginning. There was nothing wrong with the first one. And so now that God has set up this world for man again, he now shares with Noah what was on his heart before, what we read about. And this teaches us the third condition needed for a new world. And that is a right covenant. A covenant is like a contract where certain things are promised with certain conditions. And God makes this covenant with all of life, all flesh, it says. And look what he, look what he says in verse 9 of chapter 9. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds and the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. It's worth saying, isn't it, that this promise that God makes isn't one where he sort of reacted to what's happened as though it's something expected or like he owes it to all of life and they deserve this promise. No, when God makes a promise like this, it is literally just spilling out of his character. It happens because that's just what he's like. This is, in fact, you could say, classic God. He makes this promise to all life because he is about his plans and his purposes. And isn't, think about that, isn't that incredible? That Noah and the rest of mankind, since him, Israelites, and us here this evening, are in his plans and purposes. We wouldn't have life if it wasn't for this promise. And let, let him... Let him blow your mind even more. Look at verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy your life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. God makes this incredible promise. He, he, he begins to make a promise. But he's also the one that keeps the promise. When you see a rainbow, there was actually two last Sunday evening did anyone see it did any any one of them 
Was I the only one to see the, the rainbows? Okay. Well, there was two last Sunday evening. It's there because God is deciding to keep his promise. That's what the word remember means here. To keep. Keep what? Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again. They're beautiful words, aren't they? This is, a, this, is, this is actually an abnormal way for a contract to be made like today. Because God doesn't just put it in place. He also takes all the responsibility for keeping it going. We don't have anything to do with it. And you see that in verse 9. I now establish. You see that in verse 11. I establish. Verse 12. I am making. Verse 13. I have set. Verse 14. I bring. Verse 15, I will remember. Verse 16, I will see and remember. Verse 17, I have, I have established. I have put it in place. We do not have a part to play whatsoever in this promise that we benefit from. We don't contribute. We don't remind him. We don't send him a little text to say, oh, by the way, a rainbow's in the cloud. Can you remember not to bring floodwaters and destroy us all again? We don't do that, do we? He does it all by himself. This is a covenant that meant life could carry on. Without this covenant, me and you wouldn't be here today, as I've already said. And God says, I make it and I keep it. We saw this last week. Uh, We saw last week that Noah being rescued in the ark taught us that God really will rescue his people. Well, here's the next step to make that happen. A promise, a covenant that's made and kept by God. And that's the third condition needed for a, uh, a new world. The right kind of covenant for us is one where God is totally accountable for setting it up and totally accountable for keeping it going. Here's the fourth and final condition needed for a new world. And that's a remade mankind. As well as, uh, as, well as it's been going uh, for man and for this world so far, since they stepped off the ark, and the fact that mankind does end up getting scattered over the earth in verse 19 of chapter 9, as they were supposed to, what we still see, though, is the sin of mankind. Look at, look at verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some wine, some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah lies uncovered, which means he lies in shame. In shame because he's lost control and had too much wine. He's got drunk. And it gets worse. Look at what happens with uh, his son in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Is it that Ham just stumbled across his dad and then didn't know what to do, so he went and told his brothers or asked his brothers for advice? Well, the answer is no because of verse 23. Look at verse 23. But... Or in comparison, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. 
Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's their father uh, naked. Noah has sinned by getting drunk and he lies uncovered. In other words, his, his shame is on display. And instead of feeling the pain and disgrace of what his father had done, Ham gossips about it to his brothers. He, it says that he sees his shame and instead of covering it up, he just walks away and dishonors him. And then look, Noah wakes up in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will, be, will, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Ham receives a curse. And Shem and Japheth receive a blessing. The Israelites reading this know all about Ham uh, and his descendants, the Canaanites. They know that the Canaanites are famous in the Bible for disgrace and shameful acts. And who the Lord even said to Israel, you shall not be like them. And so... We, it's like now we have a family of two halves in the sons. The first half resembles those that do not cover shame. And the second half resemble those that do cover shame. But isn't it interesting that what the whole family have in common is the fact that sin is still very present. And we've seen hints of that all the way through. Uh, the, the first hint we saw was when uh, Noah came off the ark, he had to make a sacrifice. For what? For his sin. God even says, doesn't he, that the human heart is evil from childhood. It's still the same as before. And God knows that killing and murder will still happen, which is why 9 verse 6 is there. And if you look at verse 29, our last verse, it says this. Noah lived a total of 950 years and then he died. Death is still in the world. Why? Because of sin. And that is why mankind needs to be remade. This world Noah uh, lives in isn't a fresh start for mankind. This is our world. This is not the fresh start for Noah. But it does teach us what conditions are needed for the fresh start. And this is why we praise God for Jesus. Because I said in the, at the beginning that he fulfills every single condition needed for a new world. He is the clean, meaning innocent sacrifice that shows a permanently restored relationship with God and his people. He is the one that brings a new world where life is perfectly treasured and perfectly flourishes again the way it was made to be. He is the one who brings about the new covenant for his people. And it is by his sufficient death and his resurrection that the covenant is kept for us. We have no part to play 
when, we, when Jesus returns and he calls us home, we have no part to play in that. He done it all. He is the reason that we can be remade. Because of him, we can have new hearts. Hearts that in his new world never sin. How good is that? Our intentions will be never for evil, but for good. For honouring him and one another perfectly. Without failure. Without failure. How good will that be? Well, praise God for Jesus. And as I finish, um, this means there really is no good reason why we would not commit or, uh, our lives to him. And that this means that there really is no good reason why we wouldn't stay committed to him. So as his people, we continue to trust that God will bring us and keep us in his new world because of the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you that um, you've even bothered to make a covenant with all mankind that you decide uh, not to destroy us and destroy all flesh because of our evil hearts. And thank you that that is a sign that you will keep your promises to your people and renew a world that we can be a part of. And thank you so much, Father, that it is through your son's sacrifice that all of this is possible. Please help us to uh, trust uh, that he will bring us and keep us in his new world. For your glory we ask. Amen.